Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There is no one, and I mean no one, who can synthesize the Lehman moment and the direct Lehman moment like Brad Hintz, legendary at Sanford Bernstein, maker of black books on banking. Mr. Hintz, for three years, was CFO at uh, uh, Lehman Brothers and has moved on to New York University, where he teaches cherubs what not to do in the next crisis. Nobody's talking about Lehman. We're talking about the moment. It's this fiction from 10 years ago. You did not live it at that moment. You were there before. Give us a window into the Lehman distinction with Richard Fold. What made Lehman different at that time? I think we have an understanding of the Bear Stearns distinction, but Lehman's a mystery. What was Lehman like in 05, 06, 07, and onto the crisis? Oh, remember, Lehman was one of the major players in the mortgage market. You wanted to work there. Well, of course. No, I mean, everyone wanted to work well, there. Right, it was exactly. Prestigious. In my case, I was uh, treasurer of Morgan Stanley, and I could become the, the CFO of Lehman. It seemed like a, like, like a wonderful, wonderful move. The, um, you know, the, the issue was Lehman was this marvelous mortgage machine. Now, it was also a fixed income power around the world, right? Now, we know that one of the, the, the issues with fixed income is it's not liquid, right? The market is inherently not liquid, which means the, the, the market makers have to provide the capital. So Lehman was more leveraged than the rest. Lehman relied on a lot of short-term funding. They, and by the way, the rest of the street believed that repo, or the secured financing, was rock solid, would never, never go away. And of course, when the fire started in mortgages, it spread elsewhere. Well, what are the firms that you're going to hit first? Right. You're going to hit the mortgage players, and those were Bayer right. and, and and Lehman. In the case of as we were getting to the right. to, to the end, there, Lehman made the bet in 2007. Remember the crisis. Certain, what was the bet they made? They made a bet that this liquidity event, the the the, the mortgage market falling, was a an opportunity. And you actually see if you track that their balance sheet rises through the beginning of 2008. <laughs> exactly. By the way, that would work nine times out of ten in a liquidity event. If you have enough liquidity, you could, right. li you could live through it, you'd make money. Okay. They didn't. They Brad, this is important. The fancy guys like you escaped the wrath. Mr. Fold, I saw, I think, ten days before uh, the collapse. He was exhausted, yes. But you know what? Life went on. The image we have are those backs against the glass wall is they told the kids goodbye. And then we had the idea of the kids walking out with one cardboard box. I mean, that's the video media images we have today. Are those kids gonna walk out of a bank again like that? Are we gonna move on to another Lehman where they, the fancy people move on, but the kids can't, they're destroyed? Well, I don't think the kids were destroyed. You know, Lehman was a wonderful place to work. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the front office people. They, you know, if you go to, uh, to LinkedIn, you'll find you know, the, this Lehman group of alumni are just loyal as can be, even to today. Yes, the, the, the issue with Lehman was that I, I landed in Milan 
on the Monday that Lehman filed for bankruptcy. I was going on a marketing tour. Now, I knew Lehman was in trouble. That was the subject on everybody's lips, and I was hitting the European markets. While I was in the air, Lehman was, it became clear that Lehman, I, I landed, Bernstein set up an 1,100 client conference call. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, the rest of the street is burning, so none of the equity analysts could talk save me, which was a wonderful thing to work at Bernstein at that moment. So I'm on the call. What was the message that came from, from all of those 1,100 clients? It was huge fear. Why did the Fed allow it to go? So there was amazement, there was fear, there was disbelief, and who held Lehman exposure was the question. And th that explains were what Geithner, happened. Were Geithner, Posner, Bernanke, were they wrong? Terribly should have, wrong. Should they, should they have come in like Bear Stearns? They didn't have to save the Lehman equity holders, but they needed to make it less of a crisis because if you don't know, if I don't know whether you had Lehman exposure, am I going to lend you money? No. Mm -hmm. And it was that uncertainty that caused everybody to pull in. They pulled in their financing, and it led to the crisis that, 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 that occurred later. You know, we have a, a recent book that came out. And the book was, uh, was by, by Professor Ball, who makes the argument that the Fed had the power to save Lehman. But certain, whether they had the power or not is not really the issue. The issue is, should they have? And they should have. It would have, they would have, it would have made it a much softer crisis. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to save the people. You didn't have well, to save... Let's bring in my colleague, Anna Edwards, in London. Anna? And Brad, I know you spent, good morning to you, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about why uh, y you and others didn't necessarily see exactly what was coming at the time. You mentioned how the market seized up because nobody knew who held what. Do you think now when you look at the market we have the, any firewalls in place to prevent something similar from happening? The activities around living wills for banks to enable things to be wound up if they're systemically important. Has any of that really made a difference to if we had another Lehman to contend with? Well, yes, absolutely. The, um, the regulators are in a much better position in terms of understanding the linkages between the banks. They had no information on this at the, at, at the time in 2008. So, we're, you know, the banks are, they have a bigger liquidity reserve. Their, their capital ratios are much higher. Leverage is down. The size of their trading books are down. The risk-taking is down. These are all very good things doesn't exactly solve a, a tail event, but it, it certainly says that we're better prepared than we, than we were at that time. So when we're better I talk prepared, to, we're better, yeah, so we're better prepared from a regulatory perspective, Brad, and what about in terms of the minds of analysts and market uh, participants and the dangers of groupthink? Has, has everybody been forced to learn the lessons uh, and the dangers of groupthink? Because that is in part what, what got people into this situation. No, the dangers of groupthink still exist. Um, the um, I, it, my my worst piece of research was August 2007, when BNP had their had said that they could not mark the the value of their two mutual funds. I did a marvelous quantitative analysis that said. This crisis, the average crisis was 2.2 quarters long. Right. The street would, would, would drop by 40%. It was okay. wrong. Brad, I, I, this is so important. We have to bring it up. And I breached this with, with Henry Kaufman, the great Henry Kaufman before. Nobody talks about the Lehman board. Do you hold them at fault? Did they not provide the leadership and governance to an exhausted Richard Fold at the time? Um, 
you, um, I think what you have to do is, is, is look at Lehman uh, as a, a Greek tragedy. Remember, Lehman was spun off by American Express in 1994 because American Express could not sell it. Fold took over, and if one were to look at Lehman 1994 to Lehman 2006, you'd put Fold on the cover of, of Business Week. I mean, he, he took the firm from a teetering, uh, sort of one-horse firm, turned it into a global power. Now, it was all taken away from him. So were there mistakes? Yes, absolutely. Lehman's management tended to uh, love short-term funding, and that's dangerous. Um, mm. And Lehman relied on a couple of businesses too much, which was they allowed mortgages to be too much. It, was the board guilty? I don't think the board was was any uh, more uh, okay. than than other other financial <laughs> services boards. Anna. And, and Brad, that short-term funding, that, that was one of the reasons that Northern Rock, it was a very different business model, obviously, but short-term funding and reliance on those markets was also something that, um, that ended Northern Rock's uh, um, life, if you like, here in the UK. Uh, do we, have we, has that gone away? Do we need more regulation around that, or is that not part of the story anymore? Do you see too much uh, groupthink around that still? No, that has been, that has been improved. Um, if you look at the funding base of the GSIPs, the largest banks, they, uh, they, they have much more deposits, much more core funding, in other words, long-term debt than what, uh, what they had before. Now, there still is short-term funding. I think what we've learned is that repo is not stable. We've also learned that repo counterparties um, have to be willing to take risk. That KISS can't take money market funds and put them into repo and say that they're they're willing to take risk of a mm -hmm. of a counterparty. I mean that was one of the problems. I, I the analogy that I use in my class is Please. that is that we re, repo were, typical repo counterparties were zebras and what the street was doing was taking horses and painting the painting stripes on them and pretending oh, they anyway. were That's zebras. That's great. You use that in the class? Yes. Maybe, I think I should sign up. Brad Inswith us of New York University. That was extraordinary. We'll have this out on all of our different platforms at Bloomberg. I'm Surveillance McKinnon. We'll get on that through the morning. Generation in the Turkish lira, weaker, weaker lira this morning on Erdogan headlines, and then a massive move down to 6.13, stronger lira off historic high rates by the Turkish Central Bank. Usef Kamil Adin is in Istanbul right now. Usef, who is Marat Çetinkaya, the governor of the Turkish Central Bank, and what is his position today? Where does he stand within Turkish politics, economics, and finance? Tom, this was always going to be a critical test of credibility for the governor who remains largely untested in the new Erdogan spheres of influence and power. And so what happened in the last few minutes was the central bank was able to reassert a level of confidence among foreign investors. He was able to push back in terms of what the central bank thinks needs to be done versus what Mr. Erdogan believes in terms of unorthodox economic theories. And what the central bank said is that there are risks to the inflation outlook. There is an issue 
was demand. They said tight policy will remain until there's an improvement in, in, in inflation. And remember, we're at 15-year highs, right? So the weak currency is fed into prices here. Right. It's been reflected in the data, and now the central bank has to act. Rousseff, thank you so much from Istanbul this morning. Joining us from Washington, I'm pleased to say, is a former central bank official. Used to work on Threadneedle Street at the Bank of England. His name, Adam Posen, Peterson Institute for International Economics president. And he joins us now. Good morning to you, Adam. Your thoughts on a monster rate hike at the central bank in Turkey? Thank you for having me. Uh, they didn't really have a choice, but I'm glad they had the guts to do it. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're caught in the proverbial between a rock and a hard place. They have to be very active to offset the pressures from President Erdogan, which of course erodes the credibility of everything in Turkey's economic sphere. So the central bank has to try to provide that credibility. But as we know, and we saw recently with Argentina and other places, if the central bank just keeps hiking rates at a huge amount, it, it's not enough to fix the underlying problem. It can't fix an underlying problem. Uh, Adam, have you ever seen anything like this? moments before a central bank decision for the president of the nation to come out and call on the central bank to cut rates? Well, I d not in recent recollection, I mean, <laughs> but um, in a sense, actually, it is the one heartening thing here is that says that the Central Bank of the Republic of Turkey's independence actually is a little stronger than some people thought because you're, you, the, he, the, the, the President Erdogan was able to do this and it, they'd still be defied. I think that's that's a huge signal. I mean, so many institutions in government and civil society have been thrown away by Erdogan's regime and they've jailed, you know, tens of thousands of people. That the central bank was still able to do this, I think, is the most hopeful thing we've seen about Turkey for some time. Uh, John Furrow, keep going here. I'm still setting up my terminal. But, uh, John, up 3%, down 8 It is now bordering on a 12% round-trip move in Lira. It is amazing. One, two. Can we call that volatile? I could call it somebody really won in the hedge fund space and many lost. Yeah, I'm squeezing some shorts that. out there yeah. with a 625 basis point rate hike at the Central Bank of Turkey. What's interesting about this, Adam, as you know better than most, you have to compare this to where inflation is. Right. Inflation is close to 18%. In Turkey. So even with rates where they were previously at 17.75%, they didn't even have a real interest rate over in Turkey. Does positive 600 basis points real help out the situation? Is that enough? Well, it, it depends in part on Erdogan and the other factors going on. I think it does matter a lot and help a lot, both for the currency credibility and for getting the monetary offset to a lot of crazy things that are going on. But they have structural problems about currency mismatch in private sector loans. They have real doubts about fiscal policy going forward because of Erdogan's influence. They have political concerns. When I say they, I mean the Turkish people are beset by these things. Um, so, you know, again, the central bank can only do so much. They're doing the right thing. We had talked about on the Bloomberg Surveillance TV program the fact that they may have capital controls in the offing or that, that they already have put in this announcement about having to recontract in Lira. Again, that is something that the IMF and others now recognize can be useful temporarily, but they have to use that to do something else. It, this is all good short-term, but isn't going to fix the long-term. Well, let's talk about the economic fundamentals at the moment, Adam. What is an interest rate of 
mean to the Turkish economy right now? Is that a strangle on the Turkish economy? Can it work through this problem in the same way Argentina can work through the problem? How big is this? I mean, as you pointed out, the real interest rate, of course, we're now talking about a 600 basis point real interest rate, which is hard but not horrific. It is a very big shift. Um, they Turkey went into this economically with somewhat better fundamentals than Argentina. So again, if the underlying large uh, political forces at work were contained, you could think about getting through this. But keeping interest rates that high is not going to work. Right. It's just good as an alternative to having a full capital flight. Okay, I get that. It's, it's, in, it's in Obsfeld and Rogoff, and most of us read it. I mean, you helped write it. But, but Adam, what I find interesting to the domestic economy is how does business get done with a one-week repo of 2-4%? Oh, no, it doesn't get it done. It doesn't get done. No, no, no. Sorry, Tom. I didn't mean to lose, bury the point. Oh, if no, you, you didn't. Look, Fair, it was John's <laughs> fault, not yours. No, 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 no. It's mine. It's mine. John's perfect. But, but you know, it, it's business doesn't get done. The question is, would it, is business being temporarily interrupted or having full-on capital flight and, and a, a sudden stop in the economy? It, it's still better to have an interest rate-driven, domestically controlled stop that has some chance of being pulled out than to have a capital flight driven sudden stop. And and that's that's what we're comparing to. It's not versus the baseline, oh, things would be fine if they hadn't put up interest rates. This is Turkey, Adam. Um, and the question that we've asked throughout the last couple of months is whether what we're seeing in EM is more than just local issues, right. idiosyncratic problems. Do you see a broader issue for the whole complex right now? I've been more reluctant than some people to say that because I, I've seen now a few cycles where the Fed tightens and and in this case the U.S. runs an irresponsible fiscal policy and money leaves EM, but usually it's the worst ones get hit first. And so one could have well argued, as we at Peterson did six, 12 months ago, that Turkey and Argentina were the obvious targets. All that qualification said, I think this is where the trade war aspect between U.S. and China and the NAFTA going backwards and affecting global auto production starts to hit. This is where you may get spillovers onto places right. like Indonesia and Brazil, and it becomes a broader EM problem. Adam, looking ahead to the European Central Bank meeting a little bit later, I imagine it's good news to President Draghi that Turkey's getting its act together. Yeah, but I don't think it's central for the ECB decision making. I, I think it's very important for Europe. But for the ECB, they don't have the tools or the political mandate to do much about Turkey. So I think they're just going to focus on European outlook. Set a forecast later from the ECB, set to downgrade the growth forecast. Inflation forecasts remain the same. Have they got the data behind them to remove policy accommodation here, Adam? Uh, borderline. Uh, it wouldn't be a mistake if they did remove a little, um, but I think they don't need to do anything terribly strong. Uh, there is, as always in the euro area, an issue of the unbalanced growth, and removing policy accommodation would probably disproportionately hit Italy at the moment. Now, that might be intentional as a warning shot to the Italian populist government to continue to toe the line on fiscal policy, so they might want to do that, but uh, 
uh, you know, this isn't outrageous inflation or enormous growth in, in, in ECB land that they have to raise a lot. Within all your perspective, Adam, and the, and the incredible staff you've got at Peterson Institute, is this like a predictable EM crisis? Is that overwrought? Can it be escaped? Or is it just simply, look, the dominant party, the U.S., the Fed raises rates, and this is a path of tensions that you get. Is that is that the observation? I think my team at Peterson, Tom, which is always grateful for your shout outs, uh, has a mixed view, uh, as we do on most things. But basically, our view is it doesn't have to be terrible. It, you know, you don't have to have the word crisis except for countries like Turkey and Argentina. And there is issues that are being revealed, but, you know, absent some kind of panic, it really was those two countries, maybe South Africa, maybe a couple others, that were in trouble, but not the whole EM complex. I mean, think about the taper tantrum of a few years ago, where it was, you know, Brazil and a couple other particularly vulnerable economies got hit, but not everybody. Uh, everybody got a bit of a slowing. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion we have a crisis. Adam, we might have a crisis in the future if there's a downturn and they still don't have a positive interest rate at the ECB. How much longer do they need this cycle to continue for them to have an appropriate interest rate to deal with the next downturn? You know, the, the longer the better. Um, but realistically, you know, they, they this is the, the the ultimate dilemma, right? You don't put the economy through a recession to make sure that you have ammo for the next recession, right? That doesn't make any sense. So you just have to play it as it comes. I think the thing to be said is both politically and economically, uh -huh. the ECB can restart unconventional monetary policy through the banking system much more easily than the right. Fed if needed. Dr. Posen, we have to let you go. We have a presidential tweet. So we'll let Adam Posen go. He is with the Peterson Institute. We thank him Megan Green of Manulife, who's been patient to be with us uh, today, not on the dryness of ECB, but as he mentioned there delicately, the effects of a trade war. And there it is, tit for tat, tit for that, tit for tat. ECB brings their growth projections in. Is Chairman Powell going to bring his growth projections in? Yeah, so Mario Draghi weighed much more into trade than the Fed actually has. I was surprised mm -hmm. by that because it's not really their lane. It does affect growth and inflation forecasts. And I think um, the Fed talks about trade nonstop, if not in their official speeches on the sidelines right. at conferences. So I think that, that um, trade is already being factored into the Fed's growth and inflation forecast. But will they adjust again? I mean, what's so important here, Megan, and you're wonderful at this, is the gradient moving from 4%, whatever, and everybody agrees, well, you know, it's too good to be true, da, 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 we go down. But along that gradient path, can they maintain control of the message in conversation? Not, not that we'll see a jump condition like Lira today, but mm -hmm. or do we have instabilities ahead? Is the, is the Fed manages the message? Yeah, so I think that um, the Fed, we all agree that QT is the best it's going to get. It's going to decelerate from there. We're going to basically converge with our potential GDP growth as fiscal right. stimulus starts to peter out 
towards the end of next year. So I do think that the Fed will manage um, to manage that message. Um, but I, I also think that you know the withdrawal of global liquidity from the the system is partly what's causing all this volatility in EM. And that's being yeah. driven by the Fed. So as we have developments with that, actually, you could get some volatility in the Fed having to react. In the time that we've got left, and we need much more, we have to get you back. You know, what's so great here, folks, is Megan Green came in the day of 100 wins for the Red Sox, first time since 1946, which and I've been talking about Ina Slaughter all day, <laughs> uh, which was before your time, Megan. Uh, oh, before my time, too. <laughs> but but w- w- within that, Megan, is this new phrase, dollarization. And I used in my opening script today, liraization, which is what Erdogan wants in Turkey. What's different now is there's a lot of dollar debt abroad, isn't there? Yeah, so if you look at um, debt being issued in EM denominated in different currencies, euro-denominated debt's flattened out. Yen-denominated debt has actually fallen since the financial crisis. U.S. dollar-denominated debt has absolutely exploded since yeah, the financial exactly. crisis. Because rates have been so low, it's been so cheap, it, may, it made perfect sense for these countries to be issuing debt in U.S. dollars. But now that the dollar's gotten stronger, and I think that has been driven in large part by moves in the renminbi, and so that will continue as we continue to poke China in the eye on trade, um, you know, I I think the squeeze will just get tighter for the emerging market countries. And what is it brilliantly said, and what's so important about this relationship is the Fed wants to shift and normalize rates. And they've got these set of things saying, not so fast. I mean, they've got to confront that at some point. Yeah, that's right. And when you speak to the Fed, actually, nobody's really looking at EM or at the global system. That or the Lale, dollarization of the right. system. That's right. And Leo Brainard's the, the one person who's focused on this, but no one else has picked it up. Rich Clarida actually might pick it up, given his professional right. history. So we might hear more about that out of the Fed. But for the most part, the Fed is really just looking at the U.S. indicators domestically. Okay. And, and is justifying its continued gradual path. Are, are you going to come back when the Red Sox win 110 games in one season? Happily. Please, <laughs> Megan Greet. With us with Manulife and, of course, an affiliation there with the John Hancock Company of 1061 FM Boston. Why don't you get us to a wonderful Well, Mark Lehman knows all about this. To talk to us about Apple. He knows everything about about Apple. He joins us here in studio of JMP Securities. He's the president. Mark, it's a pleasure. Let me see. Are you wearing your your watch, your Apple watch? No. The iWatch is at home. Oh, my goodness. Your Apple watch is home. It's a a weekend watch for me. It's a weekend watch. Okay. Do you believe that it's going to end up being an everyday watch? I, I think already it has for a lot of people. I think the ubiquity will probably uh, continue, given um, some of the health uh, announcements as of yesterday. But it, it continues the theme of Apple, which is it, it, it pervades our life. And I'll give you a perfect example of that for myself. My daughter, Kate, moved here six weeks ago to start her job, her first job after college. And um, I noticed... Um, as I said to her at dinner last night, you haven't Congratulations, taken... Congratulations, by the way. Thank you for that. And I said to my uh, her last night, I said, you haven't taken any cash out of your bank account since you moved here. She's getting paid and she's paying rent and all that. But she hasn't gone to the ATM and physically taken a dollar out. And she looked at me like I had four eyes and said, Dad, I use Apple Pay. And it's just telling to me how much the ecosystem of Apple... Besides the wonderful products, and, 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 and we all saw the announcements as of yesterday, how much that's invaded 
our lives um, and how much it, it will continue to. I want to just put the technology on hold for just a second and get your thoughts about the retail operation that Apple runs. Do you think that an investor in Apple is rewarded for the quality and the vibrancy of their retail business? I, I, that's a great question. I think over time they have been. Clearly the stock has done really well this year and obviously over time it's been magical as a shareholder since 2002 when they launched uh, really in the summer of 2002 the um, their first real groundbreaking uh, product. But I think it will continue to because that, that supply chain, that ecosystem that they have will continue to garner more attention and I think as they put more and more products in consumers' hands and obviously it will be media um, continuing and what they're doing with the health aspects and we're going to get into autonomous and other areas the home clearly they're invading the home um, and there's that race to the home to own the house whether it's in security or entertainment or wellness and I, yeah. I think they're going to continue to garner a better better multiple the, the fact is I believe trees grow to the sky I believe that's a phrase from I, I'm going to give credit to Mr. Weinberg ages ago at Goldman Sachs they come out with a September roadshow. Come on, you you could have written the headline six hours before they did it. There's going to be an iPhone X, iPhone XS, iPhone 11, iPhone 14. What do they do when the innovation ends? That's an ageless Tom Watson question. What do they do when the September game's over? I, I mean, that's really the $64,000 question. And analysts for... As far as I can tell, um, maybe as much as a, a decade since they started, have been calling the end of that innovation, and I've yet to see it. Um, I, I, I think um, if you worry about that now, you start to trim your position. I don't worry about that right now because there's so many places where I think we are, our lives are going to be touched yeah. for the better, and given the kind of... Uh, ecosystem they have and given the billion embedded devices they're going to be the, the one you want to watch with your magic and history in san francisco i hate to say this folks but out west they actually look west across the pacific unlike on the east coast psychologically there's a huge huge different difference and, and mark you you go with their samsung and korea or the other names you know better than me how do they compete with the 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 the, the, frugal, the, the um the sage nature, the wisdom that we see out of Cupertino, how do they compete with it over time? Well, it's a great question, and I think they will. There's no lack of competition, right? There's no lack Agreed, of people yeah. who, and, and and of course, if you look at the number of units, the Apple ecosystem, but the profits, right? And 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 because of the aspirational nature of the product globally, and because of the embedded. Uh, billion units that they have out there already it's very hard to change your phone it's very hard to it's like changing a bank you don't want to do it and because that ecosystem is so powerful um, and because they continue to innovate I mean just that small announcement about the about the uh, fall detection on the watch yesterday it's going to change what it looks like for somebody over the age of 60 to want to see how he looks so, at me when he says that uh, I mentioned this, this earlier to you I would, Michael I, Barr help me here Pharaoh's all over me today because I can do like my EKG or something off my new I ECG. you know I keep telling him. Well, it all depends on what you think about the tigers and lions. I, yeah, well, Ouch. you had a heart attack the other day. I mean, come uh, on. I'm going to have well, I'm going to have can, a Wait a minute, wait a minute. Risk. Mark, Mark, Mark. Can you please disabuse Mr. Keene of the notion that people don't use those earbuds 
the ear pods? I mean, I think they do, and I am no um, savvy technologist, but they do. And I think and they work, and they work great. And I have one You're in my hand right them out now. Of your pocket right now. And I think they do look goofy, right? You do walk down the street with these, but I will tell you the quality and the ability, and 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 also just the other products are just not that good. And it's just a perfect example. They're expensive for what what they are compared to yeah. others. You can buy them for half the price for somebody else. They just don't work they as work. well as these do. And yeah. I think that's a perfect example of their watch. The watch. And if you have a others, problem, you bring it back to the store. Exactly. And you go back to the stores. There's customer service and their ability to get things done and have okay. people who you walk in who do the right by you. It's oh. just unique. Never enough time. Mark Lehman, thank you so much. With JMP Securities, with decades of wisdom on San Francisco and truly the innovation of uh, the West Coast. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.